You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. E-S-N-Y. business chip what's going on man how you doing wow thanks for that intro man it's the first time you've ever said that (laughs) i know it took me 28 episodes but (laughs) thank you yeah i'm good man good ready to talk about uh some memphis grizzlies basketball very excited absolutely and uh, as chip said we are continuing our nba a through z series uh we are targeting the memphis grizzlies tonight and we are very thrilled to have on a uh, talented site manager for the Grizzly Bear Blues uh, SB Nation website and host of the Grizzly Bear Blues podcast. We have Joe Mullinax. Joe, how's it going, man? Thank you for coming on the show. I'm doing well. That, that was nice. I don't think I've ever been called talented before. That's a that's, that's <laughs> shining light. No, uh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, as we said before we started recording, anytime uh, somebody from outside of Memphis wants to talk about the Memphis Grizzlies, I try to take them up on it because when you're in the smallest market in the NBA, uh, even with superstars like John Morant, uh, people don't uh, pay as much attention to you as maybe they would other teams, uh, like the New York Knicks, no offense, things like that. So uh, so it's okay. Uh, I'm excited to be on, and I appreciate you guys uh, giving me the chance to talk some Grizzlies basketball. Absolutely. Small market, but big results. And we are very much looking forward to getting into um, the reasons why that is the case. Uh, but we thought when uh, we thought we would start with you. So I think that the best place to start is just uh, your fandom uh, regarding the Memphis Grizzlies, um, why you enjoy writing about them. I think that there is a very clear uh, culture with this team and the fans that support it. And I, I find that people that gravitate themselves to certain NBA franchises and organizations sometimes share those pieces of that culture. Uh, so if you can just start off. Um, kind of letting us pick your brain a little bit in terms of um, why is it that you enjoy Memphis Grizzlies basketball? There's a lot to enjoy, but specifically, what resonates for you? Sure. Uh, well, I became a fan of the Memphis Grizzlies in the spring of 2011. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, so it was a smart bet, um, decided to move to Memphis for work uh, for her job. And I had no other thing connecting me. I lived in uh, Richmond, Virginia area at the time. Uh, in central Virginia, and I decided to just kind of take a leap of faith and see how things would work, and I had never really left Virginia before, so it was a chance for me to go on a little adventure, so to speak, and see if I liked something different, and I was in, I was looking for something different, and, you know, I didn't know if this girl was going to be the one or not, uh, but again, it turns out I was right. Um, it's exciting to me to think back on that time because I've always been passionate about sports. You know, I, I've, uh, I'm a football coach by trade, uh, football coach and a teacher. Um, I played basketball since I was six years old. Uh, I just stopped growing. I'm 6'3", 270 pounds. So it, it turned out that, you know, football was probably more my speed as a big man uh, in, in terms of, you know, not being tall enough to play basketball. But, you know, I've always been passionate about sports and I make connections to things. Uh, through sports. And when I decided to move to Memphis, that was the first thing I looked up because all I really knew about Memphis was Jerry the King Lawler, a wrestler, uh, (laughs) obviously Justin Timberlake, Elvis Presley. Um, I knew they had good barbecue. That's pretty much all I knew about Memphis. So I started pursuing through sports and it was right around the time that the Grizzlies went on that magical grit and grind run. Zach Randolph, super Zebo going off. They upset the Spurs 1-8. 
But even more than that, what helped my connection was the city of Memphis was going through some of the worst flooding that they had ever had in the city. And it was really, you could see the organic relationship between the team and the city. And that stood out to me more than anything. Like, in no other experience that I've ever had as a fan, I have never felt the connection that the fans of the Grizzlies have, or the fans in Memphis have with that team. It's the most real thing I've ever experienced, again, professional sports-wise. Because, like I said, I work with kids. That's different. You know, that's a completely different animal. Pro sports is usually about the money, the advertisers, all that kind of stuff. That's not how it felt with the Grizzlies. Uh, it didn't feel like it was just entertainment. It felt like they played for the city, and it felt like the city, you know, the ups and downs of the game, they felt it like the players did. Yeah. Um, and I've never experienced that before in professional sports, so that really uh, stuck with me. And obviously I am opinionated, and uh, I decided to find a blog in Grizzly Bear Blues and go and uh, become a fan poster there and commenter and kind of build up a rep and then I worked my way up into being a writer and then a paid writer and a podcaster. And eventually the time came for site manager stuff and I got hired to do that. And, you know, it's turned into me covering the 2014 playoffs and the Donald Serling uh, press conference. Like that, that initial press conference happened in Memphis. People forget that. Like I was sitting in that press conference next to J.A. Adonde and Brian Wendhorst and all these ESPN personalities that had flown into Memphis for this big uh, press conference with Adam Silver, and there's me. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, I never would have had that experience. You know, I, to cover a game as a media member, I take that very seriously. That means a lot to me. Um, I have no journalism training. Like I said, I'm a history teacher. I'm a football coach. So uh, I, I am, if there's a blogger American dream, I think I'm it in terms of working my way up from being someone who read the blog to now, you know, the way the GBB has expanded. You know, Chip uh, worked with us in the past. You know, the, the way the GBB has grown has really been remarkable in terms of its its scope. And I, I'm i proud of that. And I think that that more than anything is one of the reasons I still do this is because of that connection that I have to the city, that I have to the Grizzlies. You know, I still remember how it felt nine years ago uh, to, to be introduced to them. And I, I'll keep doing this until that wears off a little bit more than likely, which it may never wear off. We'll see. That's awesome, man. Um, as you're telling me that story, I can't help but feel there's a there's a very blue collar element to that story. You know, starting from the bottom, kind of working your way up to the top. Sure. And um, I can also see some parallels, obviously, with the city, um, and specifically with Ja Morant too. There was an article that had just came out, I think, in Bleacher Report pretty recently. Um, you know, another really talented writer, Amir Mirin Fader, and she had, uh, I think, interviewed Jaron Jackson and and Zach Randolph. Just right. about kind of Morant's um, just kind of rise to stardom. And, you know, a lot of the parallels are there. You know, he's a, he's a humble guy, works super hard. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor Jenkins is talking a lot about how much film he's watching, you know, when he's not on the court. Um, so his, his rise and specifically Murray State, you know, there's a lot of draft analysts that didn't even necessarily have him top 100, you right. know, going into that season. And all of a sudden, you start to see these amazing things that he's doing on the court, and he just keeps going up and keeps going up. Um, yeah. When you start watching him, whether it's Murray State or uh, when he comes to Memphis, given his high, uh, you know, draft stock and everything, when did you start to realize he was going to become special? I knew he was going to be special uh, from the first time I saw him play. Now, I'll be honest. I The first time I saw him play was it might have been the conference championship okay. game before the tournament run in 2019. Uh, might have been the first time I actually watched him. Um, but it was clear that he was a talented player. You know, you, you he had all the tools as a passer to be a top 10 passer in the NBA from the jump. Um, his athleticism is elite. He's a better scorer than we thought he would be. Uh, he obviously has a ways to go defensively still, but even there, he's not as bad as maybe people thought he would have been. He's not great by any stretch, but he's not a complete sieve like a Trey Young is or, or something like that. Um, you know, the thing that makes him special, and you mentioned it at the beginning of your question, again, Memphis is about those unique connections. Um, I can't stress enough, people judge Memphis like when Tony Allen retires or when Zach Randolph retires. 
and they and you know the owner of the Grizzlies announces that they're going to retire their number someday, and then people say, "Why is Tony Allen getting his number retired? Tony Allen's not a good basketball player. Like he can't even make a basket. Why is that?" Shows they don't understand the Grizzlies. Right. To be honest with you, like they don't understand that era of grit and grind. They weren't there. You know, if you were there, you felt it. Like I, you, you get why Tony Allen would be given that kind of respect. Um, and John Morant, obviously, is a much better basketball player than Tony Allen, at least in terms of talent. Uh, but he has a similar mindset, and that's what really is having Memphis fall in love with him. Um, and I wrote an article about that recently, the building the legend of John Morant, you know, his silver spoon comment that he made, you know, because there's NBA players that were talking about, you know, Rajon Rondo comparing his room to a Motel 6. Mm. Like, clearly, you've never been in a Motel 6 if you think a four-star Disney resort is a, is a Motel 6. Right. Or, you know, Joel Embiid criticizing the food, you know, when 32% of the country uh, missed their rent or mortgage payment in July, you know, or excuse me, in June. You know, that, that may not be a good look uh, to say. You're not going to worry about that from John Moran, you know, right. because of the way he came up. And he's still so young, you know, it's not like he went to a big school. Like you mentioned, he went to Murray State. He, he was playing in side gyms in AAU tournaments three and four years ago. They, they stumbled upon him. It's not like he was discovered and he became you know, the superstar immediately. He had to work for it. And everything that Memphis has earned, they've worked for. And that connection is, again, it's about it being organic. It's not forced. It's not somebody coming and being something that they're not. Uh, I'll use R.J. Barrett as an example. There was a small debate. It wasn't large. Um, but, you know, should R.J. Barrett be that pick? Because Memphis still had Mike Conley at the time and all that stuff. And obviously, the right choice was made. I think John Morant's better than R.J. Barrett. And I said that at the time. It was worth the conversation, but Morant should be the pick. Um, it also is about mentality. You know, Barrett made it pretty clear he wanted to go to New York. You know, he didn't want to go to Memphis. He wanted to be in that bigger market. Mentality matters with the Grizzlies perhaps more than any other team in the NBA. And John Morant fits that like a glove. You know, he's just a continuation of that blue-collar mentality that yeah, I think um, it, it's it, and it's really extended um, into the coaching staff in the front office as well. I researching this team in preparation for the podcast, I was really surprised about um, just the turnaround that has really happened. Right, like this team was going through a rebuild, and then um, you know you have uh, Zach Kleiman, who is extremely young as a, the general manager, uh, Taylor Jenkins, who is uh, also an extremely young coach as well. And, you know, there's there's been some trades that have gone down, um, you know, trading Kyle Korver and Javon Carter for Josh Jackson, a couple of picks, um, and DeAnthony Melton. Um, I don't know, you know, 100% what the view of the trade was at the time, but you start to see Josh Jackson as a, a guy who's clearly struggled in the NBA and with Phoenix really – um, find his footing in Memphis. Uh, granted, his sample size is not great, but DeAnthony Melton um, has become, you know, a really solid rotation player. A lot of draft and specifically analytics guys loved him coming out of school. You know, super long guy, um, very quick. You know, defensively, uh, pretty decent as well. Um, and then the Iguodala trade as well. Uh, you know, bringing in Justice Winslow, Gorgie Dang, uh, James Johnson. So what is your overall assessment of Kleiman, um, who, you know, had, seems to be hitting some, some decent, I don't know if I want to say home runs, but um, at least with the draft in, in respect, he certainly has, but has been really positive so far. And, and for being someone who's fairly new to the position, um, what's been kind of your overall assessment of him? I'll say it for you. It's been home runs. All right, well, uh, the, dude, the, dude, the dude hits dingers. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the Phoenix Sun trade. Uh, good Lord. You know, he took Kyle Korver and uh, a player in Javon Carter that wasn't part of their plan. Javon Carter was part of a draft by the previous front office right. talking about a rebirth of grit and grind. And those guys were gone the next year. Chris Wallace and, you know, J.P. Bickerstaff, they were all let go. So, uh, you know, they didn't fit. And they took those two players and not only turned them into Josh Jackson, who at the time, in fairness, people wanted to get rid of. And a lot of folks thought maybe the Grizzlies would waive Josh Jackson because DeAnthony Melton was the star of that trade. You know, you talk about the analytics mindset, and that's exactly what this front office is about. Yes. Um, you know, they have 
MBAs. They have degrees and things that aren't basketball. They're not basketball lifers, but they pay attention to the numbers and they pay attention to uh, the way of organizing a roster based around that knowledge. And they also rely on people like Tayshawn Prince. You know, I think that he's a name that sometimes gets left out of that Grizzlies front office who's extremely valuable because of what he brings to the table. He serves as a wonderful bridge between a front office and a coach. you got to remember Taylor Jenkins doesn't have a traditional route to becoming an NBA coach. Right. Uh, so you have a coach and a GM, essentially, executive vice president of basketball, whatever he wants to call himself, but he's the GM. You have two guys that don't have basketball experience. You have Tayshaun Prince in that front office who sells to these guys. They know what they're doing. Here's A, B, and C reason why. And that helps with the chemistry. You know, the players buy into what is being built by this front office in part because of Tayshaun. So whether it's the Melton trade, and again, they got second-round picks out of that. Like the Grizzlies have the 40th pick in this draft, which maybe at the top the draft is really weak. But I'd argue 25 to 45, the players are essentially the same. I agree with so you. So you, 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 yeah. have, you have a chance to get somebody at pick number 40 who you maybe could have gotten you know, in, in a first round in a better draft. Um, so there, there's a lot of ways to kind of look at that, um, or at least in terms of value, I should say. So that, I mean, the Iguodala trade, we don't know if Justice Winslow is going to be a good basketball player. But you know what we do know? We, knew, we know Andre Iguodala didn't want to be part of the Memphis right. Grizzlies. So you got something out of that situation. Uh, I think Justice Winslow will be good. I've written about that over at grizzlybearblues.com. Um, I think he's going to be a key part of that uh, core moving forward because of how versatile he is. But obviously he has to stay healthy. Uh, th- this front office is doing what you need to do in a small market. They're taking calculated risks. Uh, John Tay Porter is a great example of that. Uh, if John Tay Porter is able to stay healthy, he was a first-round talent before he tore his ACL. And they're taking a swing on him. He's healthy, supposedly, in the bubble. Um, Justice Winslow is a great example of that. Josh Jackson was a low-risk, high-reward guy. Right. If he doesn't work, you let him go. Um, they're, they're taking swings in terms of depth. To try that they think could work, but if they don't, it doesn't hurt them in the long run. And they've also set themselves up that if they want to be aggressive in free agency 2021, if they want to use future cap space to acquire more draft capital, if they want to use the big contract of Gorgie Dang to, and a first-round pick or two once theirs conveys to Boston this year to go get a star wing, that's theoretically possible. Like I'm not saying the Wizards would trade badly, Beal. But if you put Gorgie Dang, Brandon Clark, any other money that you need to make it work in three first-round picks in front of the Wizards, you can do worse in terms of value. Like, that's not a home run deal. I don't know that Washington screams, yes, we accept into the phone. But I think that's a baseline for a, a deal for an all-star caliber guard. And if you had told me a year ago that Memphis was going to have those resources, I would have laughed in your face. Yeah. Or maybe a little longer than a year ago now. Uh, the, the the lockout or not the lockout the shutdown is thrown off time a little bit yeah. as you guys probably can relate to um, but 18 months ago if you had told me that I would have laughed in your face Memphis had no resources now they do um, so Zach Kleiman has been a, a godsend he, he has completely turned around in one year an organization that had a very bleak future that looks like they bet on Mike Conley and Marcus Gasol and lost in, in fairness I would have bet I would have made that bet too they didn't respond well this front office has responded they fixed the problem. And by the way, they didn't screw over those stars in the process. Like Mike Conley is on a title contender, or at least was a title contender, right. uh, in Utah. Marcus Gasol won a championship with Kawhi Leonard in Toronto. So it's not like they messed up these guys that were legends in Memphis. Like they gave them opportunity to compete still. That resonates with guys like Jaw, to bring us back to the beginning of the conversation. And they say, hey, they're going to take care of me down the road. Maybe Memphis is a place that I can stay long term, just like Mike and Mark did. So they have the long run in mind. They have the short term in mind. Uh, I, I think he's one of the top executives in the league right now. And he's definitely the one that nobody knows about. Uh, I, I would definitely argue he's the most underappreciated GM uh, in the NBA. Yeah, I uh, and, and just to piggyback on your point, like you, you're 100% right. Like that really does matter. Um, when you have players that have committed time and energy to your franchise and in a positive way, um, making sure that they enter the twilight of their careers in a comfortable situation resonates with the rest of the league 100%, especially young players like me and Chip are big Knicks fans. Um, That that is a conversation that happens here every now and then as well. Um, So that's definitely a big piece as well. Going to hand it over to Chip. Uh, What what do you have for Joe here? I know know he wanted to talk to you about Iguodala. 
I did. I'm glad you brought up Iguodala and Winslow because I wanted to ask you about both those guys. I'm a huge Duke fan, so I love Justice Winslow. I wanted to ask you about him, but first I wanted to t- get your take on the whole Andre Iguodala situation because I was telling Jeff before you came on here, from outsiders, us looking in, we were like, what the hell is going on here? I think everybody was like that, but from you as a from a close-up perspective, you covering the team, what was your take on everything going on? It was so bizarre. Like, what was your take on that? Well, first off, he's the worst, uh, was my main <laughs> um, Not surprising, to be honest with you. I mean, if you were Andre Iguodala and you just spent the, the twilight of your career, essentially, uh, in Golden State with the Warriors, the Splash Brothers and, and all that stuff, and then they dump you, essentially. That's what Golden State did. You know, people like to make fun of Memphis for the market it is, but nobody's hating on Golden State for panicking and, exactly. and dumping Andre Iguodala for a first-round pick, which, by the way, a 2024 unprotected first-round pick, if you've seen how old Clay Thompson and Steph Curry are going to be, like that could be an extremely valuable draft pick right. uh, four years from now. Um, Golden State may not be very good four years from now. So it's it's something to keep in mind on that front too. Uh, he didn't want to be there, you know. And again, Memphis is a place where if you don't want to be there, they're going to run you out of town. That um, they're going to make it very very awkward for you. And I don't think Iguodala, you know, stepped foot in town maybe more than once or twice. So he he didn't want to be there. The organization saw him as a means to an end to acquire further draft capital. Memphis took advantage of a desperate Golden State. That didn't want to lose Durant for nothing, essentially, and that's pretty much how it worked out. They, I think, they put up a public face that they were hopeful that he would be interested in engaging the organization and being a veteran leader for a young team because that would have been awesome to have Andre Iguodala as someone that was invested in helping build a culture because that's something that the Grizzlies are interested in. And you know, Eric Spolstra at Miami and all the teammates there. Iguodala is capable of doing that, of course, but he just didn't want to be in Memphis. It wasn't a good fit. Justice Winslow wants to be in Memphis because Justice Winslow knows the opportunity that he has. He knows that he can kind of revitalize his career. The two years that he was healthy, he was one of the better young wings in the NBA. People loved watching him play. He's extremely versatile. He can play multiple positions, defend multiple positions. He can handle the ball. He played point guard for a large chunk of his time in Miami a couple of years. Uh, I don't know how much he'll do that in Memphis. But as a secondary facilitator, uh, imagine allowing John Morant to play off the ball coming off screens, attacking the ball as a cutter, or excuse me, attacking the rim as a cutter. Um, He hasn't really been able to do that as much as maybe he would like. And John Morant's a scorer. He can score the basketball. He doesn't just have to pass it. So I think that allowing Ja to do that more consistently, allowing for players, even like a Gorgie Dent, who has been a good three-point shooter the last couple of years, he's been atrocious for the Grizzlies since he's come. But that's out of character for him. I expect Yang to, to be a better three-point shot. But, you know, a Justice Winslow, Gorgie Yang pick and pop with John Morant cutting from one corner, Dylan Brooks in the other, you know, who are you going to pinch off of? Who, who, who are you going to leave? There's lots of ways that they can attack you with Justice Winslow in the fold. And perhaps most importantly, Justice Winslow wants to be in Memphis because it's a fresh start for him. Andre Iguodala didn't want to be there. So... The Grizzlies essentially got a first-round pick and Justice Winslow, a former first-round pick, for dealing with Andre Iguodala. I think Memphis comes out as the huge winner in that trade. And I think Memphis won big in that trade. I think the fact that they got a prospect like Justice Winslow for a guy who made it publicly known, like on TV, made it publicly yeah, he known that he didn't tour. want to be there. Yeah, yeah like... <laughs> He's going on first take and get yeah. up and whatever terrible morning show that ESPN <laughs> is trotting out. Like, come on, man. You don't want to be here, and that's fine. Like, it really is. Like, it sounds like I'm a, I'm a hating Memphis fan, but you're allowed to decide or have an opinion on where you're going to finish your career because he's on the downward slope. He's no longer in Golden State. That dynasty's over. He can have an opinion. Uh, but don't get mad when people don't like you for your opinion. You're, you're, you're free to voice your you're, – you're free to use your voice. You're not free from the consequences that come from So So don't be frustrated when a fan base doesn't understand your perspective. When you've made it very clear you don't want to be a part of the organization that the fan base is so passionate about. I love it did seem bizarre to me that ESPN and all the national media seemed to give him a pass 
Nobody, Nobody cares did. about Memphis. Nobody cares. Yeah. I, I, if we're being honest, and I'm all about honesty, I care about Memphis. I have plenty of people at our blog that care about Memphis. Yeah. They're, they're, I would argue that Memphis, or excuse me, Grizzlies Twitter, is one of the very best Twitter fan bases in, in all of the NBA. Uh, there's lots of knowledgeable people that follow the team and are passionate about the team. And I know Memphis is great. <laughs> But not everybody does. And if you're Andre Guadalla and you spent, like I said, you just spent a ton of time in, you know, Silicon Valley, and you have eyes on Miami, yeah, Memphis isn't going to be for you if that's the stuff you're looking for. Um, so I, I think that a lot of it is because of the market. You know, people don't respect what Memphis is as a market, and that makes sense to an extent. They don't have beaches, they don't have bright lights or a ton of bright lights, they don't have, you know, huge endorsements and that sort of stuff. But again, if you visit, if you stay there for a consistent amount of time, you know there, there's a spirit and a soul to that city that'll really speak to you if you let it in. And uh, that's not something that usually NBA players are, are looking for. You know, Andre Iguodala would probably, uh, if he was more active on social media, more. You know, he, he might be one of those silver spoon kinds of guys that that uh, John Morant was talking about. Memphis is not a silver spoon kind of place, and John Morant's not a silver spoon kind of guy. He didn't fit the the mentality of the Memphis Grizzlies, so. It's all for the best in the end. I uh, I actually love what um, Dylan Brooks said about the entire situation. Uh, for a young guy, and I think it speaks to the camaraderie on that team and also the connection with the city, when Brooks says, you know what, I can't wait to, to play him so he can show you what Memphis is about. Um, and Moran, it also kind of echoed some of the similar, similar sentiments as well. And you get the sense for, and, and to me it's remarkable, and I'm sure, Joe, you could speak more to this too. It's like, Despite that team being young, right, teams that usually have a lot of young guys are kind of scattered and all over the place. There's a there's a very sincere togetherness with this squad, and I think that was kind of uh, maybe a positive that came out of this whole Iguodala situation. Yeah, the chemistry's off the charts. You know, they even the older guys like a Jonas Valanciunas. You know, Jonas Valanciunas loves the chemistry. Talks about it. Kyle Anderson, you know, who played for Greg Popovich in San Antonio says that this is the closest team that he's ever been a part of. Now, that's pretty high praise. So I really do think that they play, they care about each other, they play for one another. And again, that's something that's unique in professional sports. You don't always see that. You know, oftentimes you hear more about the drama between teams and players than, than you hear about their chemistry. And Memphis isn't, you know, uh, it's not a place that's completely innocent when it comes to that. Marcus All essentially had David Fisdale fired. So it's not like the Grizzlies are free of drama, uh, but at the same time, since this new era has begun, it's probably because they're free of expectation. Like the fact they're in Orlando right now in the playoffs, if the season ended today, is a miracle. Nobody expected that. Uh, the only team that was expected to be worse in terms of outperforming their Vegas win loss totals is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, and even the Thunder was supposed to be better than the Grizzlies. So the fact that Memphis is even here is a testament to that coaching staff, to the young guys, the way that they play for one another, the growth of guys like Jaron Jackson Jr. as a three-point shooter in particular. Um, his form is weird, but it goes in, so we'll work with it. Um, the, the fact that the Anthony Melton has been so productive since he entered the rotation on December 1st. Uh, we talked about Valanciunas, how effective he's been. Brandon Clark, steal of the 2019 NBA draft. Um, the only guy that has had better rookie years in terms of PER and rebounding and all that kind of stuff, uh, is Mitchell Robinson, who you guys are familiar with. So Brandon yeah. Clark is essentially oh, yeah. having that kind of season right now as a rookie. Um, so he's a guy who's going to be first-team All-NBA rookies with John Morant more than likely. So the Grizzlies are really in an amazing place, and, and they're comfortable with one another. And I think that that's what matters most going into this bubble. And I think Memphis might surprise some people because of it. You know, They're not worried about the amenities. They're not worried about the things that they don't have. They're focused on the task at hand, and it shines through in the way that they interact with one another, even in the small video clips you see on Twitter or the media availabilities that we're able to uh, talk to the guys via Zoom every day. You see that they enjoy being around each other, and I think that that, more than anything, carries a lot of weight going into this unique situation. Obviously, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, you know, there's more talented teams that are probably going to beat Memphis in the end, but when it comes to these eight seeding games, I, anybody who has New Orleans as a lock to make the eight seed is about to be surprised by what the Memphis Grizzlies. Do. I like that, um, and I, I I'm 
very excited to see how it plays out. Chip, is there another one that you have for Joe? Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, what you think of their odds to make the AC because I'm looking at their schedule here, and they have Portland, San Antonio, and New Orleans, Utah, Oklahoma City, Toronto, Boston, and Milwaukee. Jesus. They have a really tough schedule. It looks brutal. Yeah. No, no doubt. So, but I think if you look at it, it depends on your perspective, right? And I do think this is where I am a little bit of a Memphis homer, so maybe you guys can tell me how much of a homer I'm being. Those, three, <laughs> those first three games are massive. Uh, I think the Trailblazers are a team that Memphis lines up with really nicely. Obviously, Damian Lillard's probably the biggest star of anybody outside of the bubble, or excuse me, outside of the playoffs right now in terms of you know actually being productive. People want to anoint Zion, but he's only played 19 games. Um, so Damian Lillard has a bigger body of work in terms of being a superstar. Um, but who's going to defend John Moran? You know, they don't have Trevor Ariza. They return uh, Nurkic and Collins, but they don't. Who's going to defend John? Nobody. Portland has no one that can hang with John Moran. So I see Ja winning that game for the Grizzlies. From there, the Spurs are banged up. They don't have LaMarcus Aldridge. It's hard to bet against Popovich and his crew, but I, I think that's a game that the Grizzlies could take. If they're 2-0 going into that Pelicans game, which is a bad matchup for Memphis, because if I say that Portland doesn't have anybody to defend John Morant, the Pelicans have Lonzo Ball and Drew Holiday. They have two guys that can defend John Morant. So if they come out of those first three games 2-1, I think that makes them a lock for the play, because it's going to be very unlikely that anybody is 3-0 at that point. And even the teams that are, if they're 3-0, they only gain one game on the Grizzlies, so that would put Memphis at two and a half games up for the, for the eight seed. Uh, from there, Utah's going to be a shell of themselves. Uh, they don't have Bogdanovich. They have you know, Gobert and Mitchell. There sounds like there's some drama there, so Utah's not as good as they were before the season suspended. Obviously, OKC will probably be uh, pretty solid. That'll be a game that'll be a challenge, but then you, those final three games that sound really rough on paper, because it's the top three teams in the Eastern Conference, those are all teams that are going to be locked their spots more than likely after five seeding games. So how much incentive is Giannis Antetokounmpo going to have to play in that last game? I don't think very much. How if Kyle Lowry or if Siakam for the Raptors has a little bit of a nick or is a little bit sore after playing so much basketball in such a short amount of time, are the Raptors going to risk it if they're not going to be able to catch the Bucks? So I think there's pretty high probability that of those three games and at least one of them, the Stars don't play and, or at least especially the Bucks in that last one, why risk Middleton and, and Giannis going into the, uh, to the playoffs? So if Memphis can be, I think in the games I just said, if Memphis can be 3-2 and two going into those final three games and then go 1-2 and two in the last three, that puts them at 4-4, four and four and they're in the play-in. Sounds like uh, there's no way they're not in the play-in if they're 4-4. Four and four. If they're 5-3 and three or better, I think they have a chance to be the 8th seed outright. And there is no play-in because of the lead they have. They just have to gain one game on these teams in order to avoid the play-in entirely. And if they completely collapse, they go 2-6, and 1-7, and 0-8, oh they don't deserve to be in the playoffs in the first place. So Memphis is in a really unique spot where if they do what they've done all season, be a 4-4, four 3-5 and four, three and five basketball team, they're going to be in the play-in. And they've got to beat the Pelicans, Trailblazers, the Kings, who we haven't talked about who should get more recognition for being a, a good basketball team. Um, the Kings are a threat, too, and they play the Pelicans twice. They could knock New Orleans off twice, so we're having a different conversation. Um, I, I think that the play-in is the most likely scenario, which is what the NBA wanted, to be honest with you. Uh, right. That's clear by the structure, and that's okay, because I think that allows for the Pelicans, the Kings, and the Trailblazers to have a legitimate chance at the playoffs that they didn't get because the season was condensed. But it also honors the Grizzlies' advantage. And they should have an advantage because of the 65 games that have been played up to that point. It's a challenging schedule. I'm not going to say that it's not. Obviously, it's hard. And I do think, you know, 4-4, four and 5-3 four, and three would be a massive one. 4-4 uh, four and four is probably being optimistic. 3-5 and five is probably realistic. If they go 1-7 and 0-8, oh they shouldn't be in the playoffs anyway. And they're playing with house money. No one expected them to be here. So the games are challenging, but I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity to see how much they've grown. John Morant has put on 12 pounds of muscle. So how explosive he is doing that, and what, how his game is adapted, uh, is going to be fascinating to watch play out. And I think, like I said, if, if teams are overlooking the Grizzlies, they're going to be shocked. Uh, they have one of the deeper rosters in the entire playoff picture. 
uh, because of all those home runs that we talked about them hitting in, in their uh, in their front office moves. Kyle Anderson is essentially their eleventh man at this point. You know, that's pretty darn good if you're a if you're a team that's probably going to be dealing with depth issues as every team will in the bubble. I think you get the sense too um, that as we get closer to the restart, that coaching is going to loom large, um, and specifically your execution um, in and out of you know out of timeouts, uh, different types of sets, guarding, um, sure. out of timeout plays, and I'd be remiss if we didn't spend some time really discussing Taylor Jenkins here. Uh, really, really interesting researching him for this podcast. You talked a little bit about his unconventional. Uh, road to the NBA, uh, was not a guy that played in college, um, had an internship, I believe, and, uh, you know, with, with the Spurs and kind of worked his, his way up, spent time with the Hawks, with the Bucks as well. I was reading a, a, um, an article from The Ringer uh, back in early November, and I thought some of the quotes about him were really, really interesting. And, you know, Mike Budenholzer essentially said that he doesn't believe that there's anyone in the medical field, judicial field, um, or anywhere that is more organized than Taylor Jenkins. Um, and another amazing quote that I thought kind of speaks to his versatility as a leader, um, someone had said that it's rare that you find someone who both knows how to get the trains to the station on time and uh, understands everyone's family situation within the organization. And so that's really speaking to Jenkins' ability to organize, lead, but also create relationships with the people uh, that he's working with. And so I, I guess that my question is, is that kind of summary that I'm giving you about Jenkins, do you see that um, out on the court? Uh, do you see that in terms of what you're hearing about, you know, how players respond to him in the locker room? Because... Everything that I'm hearing is that this guy is kind of like a budding rock star. Um, what are some examples of, of that that you've kind of gleaned in, in this his, his first full season? Not just a get-back coach anymore, right? Like before he became a head coach, his claim to fame was sprinting out and making sure no Milwaukee Bucks Oh, players. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, I did see that too. bench after a, a brawl broke out or was about to break out. Um, he is a rock star. You know, he's another example of a home run hire that nobody really knew who he was. But the people that, you know, are involved in the league, like you mentioned, obviously Coach Bud and, and others, uh, they know very well who he was and what potential he had. Um, he, he's better at out-of-timeout plays than he gets credit for. He understands the need for pace. He understands that he needs to adapt things on the fly at times, like the Anthony Melton's a great example. It, it was by injury, partly. Uh, but Melton coming in, being able to run with John Morant and, and play the style that uh, – Jenkins wants to play, even though he's not necessarily the best three-point shooter. Um, I think Jenkins has done a lot of things. And you mentioned the relationship building. That's so important, especially when you have the resume that Jenkins has. Like I said earlier, when it comes to climbing, it, it rings true for Jenkins, too. He's not a traditional NBA person. you know. So if you are going to be a jerk, or if you're going to have a, a leadership style like a Tom Thibodeau, maybe, or somebody like that, but you don't have the resume to back it up, the players are going to tune you out. Right. Greg Popovich, if he wanted to be an ass... Greg Popovich could be an ass, you know. At this point, Doc Rivers could be an ass. You know, there's guys that have kind of earned that. Rick Carlisle, you know, there, there's names that have earned that possibility and reputation. Obviously, Jenkins, even after this season, is not one of those guys. So he has to prioritize relationship building or else they're not going to listen to him. And he understands that. I think players respect that organization and his media availabilities. Jenkins has talked repeatedly about how they had mapped out what their plan was for getting into the bubble how they were going to do practices, how they were going to do rest days, how they were going to have team-building activities, all these different things that were prioritizing both the mental and physical health of the players to get them as ready as they could be for that July 31st game against the Trailblazers. Um, he had it all mapped out. He, he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's extremely organized. You can tell that in his way that he carries himself. The players respect him. The organization respects him. He respects Memphis. He understands the importance of the city. There's so many things that you can go on and on about Taylor Jenkins with, but I think the biggest piece of, uh, of praise that I can put on him is when, when guys talk about culture and chemistry and things like that, that starts with the head basketball coach or the head coach in any organization when it comes to sports. You all, the team will take your mentality to an extent. 
And I think that Memphis is a good example of that. They're young and they're energetic. And you know, Taylor Jenkins is young and he's energetic, as we saw in that video of him sprinting out uh, to protect the bench. Uh, but he, he's also somebody that listens. Tell he's a good listener with the Black Lives Matter movement going on. He talked about how he listened to the players. They would have you know town hall meetings essentially, and, and they would talk through things. And you know they can trust him. And I think that that matters a lot more than people understand because of exactly what Taylor Jenkins came from and what his players came from. They have that common ground of basketball, but they have to trust that he knows what he's talking about, and they have to trust that he cares about their backstory before they can listen to that information, if that makes sense. So it really has been impressive to watch him work, and he's a guy that I think is only going to get better as time goes on. But coaching in the bubble is going to be massively important. I think even more than in-game coaching, the preparation going into these games is going to be massively important. And to hear Taylor Jenkins talk about that so much is reassuring. I think uh, the perfect way for me and Chip to describe probably watching Taylor Jenkins coach as we get into the bubble is like that SpongeBob SquarePants meme where like <laughs> the person is watching from the sewer gate or whatever and it's like they're watching their friends have fun. Because we got David Fisdale um, and it oh, didn't work sure out. Did. Um, and I, you know, Chip, I didn't know if you wanted to bring it up. I, I, I was going to ask, but I, you I, can ask if you want. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to do, I want to, um, probe Joe's mind a little bit on Fizz. Um, but I do want to give him a little bit of context just for both of us. Uh, I, I bought the David Fizzdale Kool-Aid. I, I drank it all. I wanted this to work. I, I loved his charisma and, you know, from a oh, player relations relationship standpoint I do believe in in terms of some parts of culture that he did develop a lot of strong relationships with players um, in terms of basketball on the court uh, no dice um, that did not work out at all I know chip has a much stronger opinion on that um, as probably one of the worst coaches that's ever graced our sidelines um, the worst I think the worst. <laughs> What did what did you see from Fizz? I, and I honestly, I don't even really care too much about the Marcus All thing. Um, but just from like an X's and O's standpoint, uh, maybe differences between him and Jenkins. Like, what was your overall take on Fizz? Well, I think for context from the Memphis perspective, you know, it came out after the fact. Uh, there was tension between Fizdale and Gasol and, and those older guys in the core four, as they're called in Memphis, almost from the beginning. Uh, because Fisdale wanted to do some things that, you know, Mark didn't necessarily want to do or Mike didn't necessarily want to do or Zach definitely, like Zach Randolph becoming a sixth man. That was Fisdale's idea. Uh, there's things that Fisdale that did that worked. Like Mike Conley's best season of his yeah. career happened under David Fisdale. Yeah. Like, there's no argument against that. Mark Gasol, the three-point shooter that everybody loves watching, happened under David Fisdale. Certainly like, that did. Is, those are two arguments for David Fisdale. But when it comes to that culture aspect, when you come in from Miami, and he was in Miami with Spoltra, won the championships with the Big Three, all that stuff, he kind of had that mentality that if you don't do that or if you aren't reaching for that level of success or if you're not doing it that way, which is really easy to say when you have three Hall of Famers and four if you count Ray Allen towards the end, um, if you have four Hall of Famers on your roster, uh, it's easy to say that you have a strong culture. You know what I mean? The Grizzlies made the playoffs seven years in a row, and they were excited when Marcus Gasol was a starter for the All-Star team. They, they, they may not have had a single Hall of Famer on that team uh, during the peak years of the Grizzlies right there. So I, I think that when Fisdale came in and essentially told the Grizzlies core guys that you haven't done anything, that this team hasn't won, your way doesn't work because you haven't won a championship, he hadn't earned the right to say that. And I think if Memphis fans knew that that was said earlier, they would have turned on Fisdale earlier. Because, again, they made the Western Conference Finals when no one expected them to do so. They, they had more success than they were supposed to. You know, the, the fact that they were what they were, uh, a, a smaller-scale version of the Rip Hamilton, Ben Wallace Pistons, uh, was a miracle. Like, their existence essentially was a basketball miracle. And for someone who hung out and drank wine with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade to come in and say, you know, you're not, you're not anything compared to what I came from and you should do it my way because of it, that message was never going to be successful. And I think that's where he really misstepped the most. 
he wasn't strong with his rotations. Again, he had some out-of-timeout stuff that was confusing. Uh, we mentioned the, the Zach Randolph issue. Jermichael Green was a better player at that point, especially defensively. But again, you have to sell that move more effectively, and Fisdale wasn't able to do that. He was an effective salesman when it came to, look at me, I look smart, I dress well, I look the part. Um, but it was one of those emperor has no clothes moments when there were those key points in games that he wasn't able to respond. Um, so my view of Fisdale is effective assistant coach. He can be, we talked about Tayshawn Prince being that bridge. I, I think on a coaching staff, Fisdale's really good at being that bridge between a head coach and the players. Uh, but at the same time as the head man, he doesn't have the ability to have empathy with every type of player. He sees a certain type of player as the way that it should be done. Maybe he thought that in New York everybody would want to be that way or carry themselves that way or that method of coaching would be effective. And it obviously didn't turn out to be the case. You know, you need more than talent. You need more than awkward comparisons to other guys that you've coached in the past. You need to have some results. And you need to have some substantive ability to put these guys in positions to be successful. And Fisdale wasn't able to do that consistently in Memphis, and clearly it didn't work with the Knicks either. Sounds sounds uh, very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty <laughs> the the car salesman, the whole car salesman thing, just perfect. Like the the whole description of him selling himself as someone who's smart with the glasses and the way he talks to the media, it's so perfect. But again, like he was a key assistant on a team that had LeBron James, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade. You could argue that that group underachieved even though they had one of the best runs in NBA history. But the way that they were built, you could argue they should have been better than they were. And uh, I, I guess Spolster is to blame for that to an extent, but you're on a coaching staff that, you know, how much depth was on that staff when it comes to helping Spolster? I think, again, you can see Fisdale. I think Fisdale benefited from the coattails a little bit. And that even led to him, because of the way he got ousted in Memphis, I think that's fair. Um, he was not, it wasn't all his fault. Marcus all earned some credit for that too. But I, I do think that New York really fully exposed him for what he is. He's an assistant coach. At this point. That doesn't mean he shouldn't get another chance down the road if he learns from his mistakes. But he also strikes me as someone that probably thinks he was wrong, that he didn't make any mistakes. And if that's his mentality, he's never going to be successful as an NBA. It's uh, it's really, and Chip will know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give too much detail about um, the the name and whatnot, but we had, um, with our site, we had a prominent writer uh, reach out to one of the people at uh, ESNY that, that wanted to write for us. Um, and, you know, this was somebody who knew people within MBA circles. And I pushed back on this specific tidbit of information, but the person essentially said that, uh, Fizz will wow you in an interview. He's he's a car salesman. There's not a lot of substance, but the person essentially said, you know, a lot of window dressing. You know, not a lot to back it up. Um, and I I didn't like that. You know, I thought that was unfair. Um, and here we are. You know, a bunch of months later as Knicks fans, and we are waiting for Tom Thibodeau to be uh, named the next head coach within a week Which or two. Is so, so dumb. Can we? <laughs> that is just so dumb. Like but, you have Kenny Atkinson right there. Like, he doesn't even have to move. Like, we talk about establishing a culture. He's right there. What are you doing, New York Knicks? He's well, right there. All right, but here, here's the thing. So Chip is going to agree with you. Chip Chip is uh, Chip is very pro-Kenny uh, Atkinson. Very pro-Kenny. I am, too. I am, too. I, I like Kenny as well. I don't I don't think Tib is, Tibbs is a bad hire, um, and I do think he has at least a decent track record of developing some players. Uh, I know the, the criticisms are there. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't love Tibbs, but, uh, Tibbs to me, um, hopefully shows a, a step in the right direction. We'll see. Well, he's, what he is, is a New York hire. He's a name yeah. that has had success in the past. If they were smart, they'd hire Kenny Atkinson and build that culture around guys like a Mitchell Robinson. And you have a cornerstone guy who could essentially be Rudy Gobert who's 22 years old, who you have this opportunity to build upon, and you're going to run him into the ground with Thibodeau. Like that, that's my only concern with Tibbs. Right. I agree with you that it's not as bad as Fizdale. Like anybody who's viewing it as that negative is not being fair. But to me, if you are trying to build a culture, 
something that people want to be a part of. If you want to rebuild the Knicks' mystique, it has to start with winning. I mean, there's a reason Durant and Irving shunned you. It's because you haven't won. So you have to be in a place where being a Nick means something again, and I think that you have to build that from the ground up. You're not going to be flashy. And I mean, good Lord, Tom Thibodeau ain't flashy. He's a name in circles, but he's not somebody that everybody's going to look at like you would have, like you hired Pat Riley in the 1980s. It, it's like Atkinson makes a ton of sense, and he's literally right there. But um, I, I think that you could. You, it's not a bad situation by any stretch to have uh, to have Tibbs in the building. Anybody who's completely crushing it is being unfair. But I, I, Atkinson's easy to me. He's right there. Joe, you're really endearing yourself to Nick's Twitter right now. I hope you know that. This is true. <laughs> you're really. <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest, I'm not super familiar with Nick's Twitter, but I'm, I'm happy to be a part of your circle after my kid love. I, again, you want, if you're a player, you, you obviously as an NBA player want to be a part of a market. And New York has that benefit. Only LA is a better market at this point than New York, I think is fair to say. Um, in terms of weather, probably primarily more than anything, entertainment stuff like LeBron and KD are doing all that. Um, but when it comes to the Knicks and the history of the Knicks, it's better than the Nets. It just is. Like, the Nets were the laughing stock in the 1990s. Like, the fact they were the upstart against George Bulls that had to try to, you know, push to just win a game or two. The Knicks were the main threat. You know, there's history with the New York Knicks, and I, I think that you can't rely on young players to understand that you have to draft well and you have to bring in a coach that's going to help build that back up. Like there's a Knicks mentality that can be found again. You can't rely on just being New York though, to have people come play for you. It has to be a long-term burn. You know, part of me is terrified that they're going to try to hire Zach Kleiman or something like that and bring in somebody that, that, that's going to have that kind of mentality. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think that New York could definitely do better than what they've got. Atkinson, like he, he has built a culture. Like the Brooklyn Nets were way better than they were supposed to be, and Brooklyn fell into the trap that the Knicks usually fall into, pursuing the superstars. This is an opportunity for New York to take a lesson and, and try to be better. Than Chip is smiling because he's been saying the same thing for the past like three or four months, and he's just like, finally, someone <laughs> who agrees. Like Great minds, man. This is true. This is I'm true. very. Bro, Kenny, and the tips thing, it, it just bothers me because it's not just a flashy hire thing, too. It's just because it's Leon Rose is in charge now, and he was Tibbs' agent. So that's why he's being hired. That's why it's so nixy to me. Yeah. But No, that makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. Chip, any um, – yeah, so Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. No, sorry, buddy. Go ahead. No, I was going to say any, um, any other Grizzlies-related stuff. I think we touched on all of the questions I had. I wanted to – we already talked – I didn't realize we were going to talk about DeAnthony Melton. We already talked about him. I just wanted yeah. to ask about the analytics DeAnthony uh, Melton. I just wanted to get into that. But we already talked about him a little bit. As like a, uh, I, His metrics are crazy. Like I, I just love looking at DeAnthony Melton he's stuff. He's very smart. Like something that we didn't talk about, yeah. his, his wingspan gets brought up a lot. 6'6", six, like six, six, right? It might yeah. be a little bit longer than that, but he, he just has such long arms. But what really makes him pop off the screen when you watch him is he's so smart. Like, he sees rotations. He sees cuts from opposing offenses in terms of scheme. He understands what offenses are trying to do, and he beats cutting wings to the basket and other guys coming off the of screens. He beats them to their spots. Not all the time, but he, he really is a student of the game. You can see that he understands basketball. And I think that that, even more than anything, you know, obviously he has talent. He has the athleticism to run with jaw. We talked about that earlier. That makes him valuable. But he also is just so intrinsically intelligent when it comes to the game of basketball, has that high basketball IQ. That's so valuable, especially at such a young age. It's only going to get better, and that's one of the best things about it. It's probably one of the reasons that uh, uh, looking at some of the stuff for him in preparation in the pot, at one point, I think it was in December or January, he had like the fourth highest steal rate or steal percentage uh, in the NBA, period. Um, you know, it's just, again, I think it goes back to this notion that we're talking about where, where there's a 
um, organizational focus top-down in focusing on analytics and bringing in players that um, fit the math. And certainly Brandon Clark, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., uh, John Morant, all these guys. I was just looking at something else today. You know, they had, um, I don't know if it was five or six, uh, six players in double figures and five players shooting over 36% from three. I mean, you're going to win some yeah, games when that's crazy, the case. Yeah. <laughs> and they, um, they, The front office understands that, you know, Kevin Durant's not walking through that door. You know, Giannis isn't walking through that door in 2021. They're not bringing in a big-time free agent. The biggest free agent signing in the history of the Memphis Grizzlies is Chandler Parsons. Like, that's the truth. Like, people like to crap all over Parsons now, and it was a bad signing. But at the time, Chandler Parsons was in most people's top tens in terms of free agents available yeah. in 2016. He was in everyone's top yeah. tens, oh, I absolutely. think. At the time, absolutely. that was a phenomenal signing for the Grizzlies, and it just didn't work out. They swung and they missed. Um, I, I think that you need to keep that perspective. You know, they're not bringing in a superstar. they got to get that guy through the draft. They have to convince him that he's going to want to stay. Uh, I think that's what they need to do with Jaw especially, but Jaron Jackson uh, to a lesser extent. And they also need to put guys around those two that are going to complement them as best they can. Melton's a great example of that. Brandon Clark on the pick and roll with John Morant. Good luck uh, in terms of defending that and collapsing to the basket. Dylan Brooks kicking out to him for a three-point shot. They've done a really remarkable job. And, again, Brooks had been there. Jaron Jackson Jr. had been there. But guys that are in this rotation now that weren't there before, uh, DeAnthony Melton, uh, Jonas Valanciunas, obviously uh, Josh Jackson having the success he did, um, Tyus Jones, someone that we haven't talked about in this podcast, mm-hmm. has an elite assist-to-turnover ratio, text the basketball, uh, which is extremely valuable for a team that has so many possessions. You want to try to save those as much as you can especially with Jaw flying around as much as he does. Uh, when Jaw's not on the court, the more chances you have to score in terms of protecting the ball, the better off you are. Tyus Jones is the perfect backup for Jaw Moran. Like, there's so many things that this front office has done right that it, it really does make you feel positive about the future as long as those guys are in charge. Because, again, like I said earlier, the Grizzlies were a dumpster fire 18 months ago uh, in terms of their future. It looked like they had guessed wrong on Gasol and Conley, and they were dead in the water. Now they have one of the brightest futures in the NBA, and the other two teams that people would argue have the brightest futures, the New Orleans Pelicans and the Atlanta Hawks, are not in the playoffs right now. Right. Now the Pelicans might be in three weeks or four weeks, but right now the Pelicans aren't in the playoffs. Right now Atlanta isn't even in Orlando's bubble. Uh, the Grizzlies are in the catbird seat for that eight seed. To me that means something when it comes to measuring futures because they're a decent basketball team right now when they weren't supposed to be. I mean, I think that's probably a good place to finish. Um, such a, a really interesting team as we go forward for a lot of reasons top down. Super exciting. Honestly, uh, I know Chip feels the same. We talked about John Morant on one of our earliest pods as easily uh, one of the most exciting young players to watch in the game. He plays the game with such a smoothness, uh, but there's also a little bit of grit and grind to him too that I think fits in nicely with the city. Um Joe, uh, before we let you go, please uh, give anybody that's listening a chance uh, to, to let them know where you know they can find your writing, um, where they can find you on Twitter, if there's any articles or anything that you are working on or, or people on your site that are working on uh, that you want to plug, uh, please feel free to do so. Sure. Uh, well, I appreciate that. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Mullinax, M-U-L-L-I-N-A-X. Uh, the blog is at SBN Grizzlies. We currently have four podcasts that are part of our podcast network. We put out three to four articles a day. Uh, We cover every aspect of the Memphis Grizzlies organization, obviously the Grizzlies themselves in Orlando. We also have a uh, beat writer that would cover the Memphis Hustle, the G League affiliate. We have a beat writer who covers Grizz Gaming, the gaming affiliate, uh, the eSports League for NBA 2K. Uh, We cover every aspect of the Memphis Grizzlies. We're pretty proud of that. And uh, like I said, Chip's a little more familiar with us. I'm really proud of what we've built at GBB. We have a tremendous staff over there, a lot of hardworking folks. You know, I've been the site manager for five years, and a lot of times, you know, people say when they think GBB, they think me. Uh, but but there, there's a time, there's a team behind me that uh, does an amazing job helping me with the site. If it was just me, GBB would not be what it has become. And uh, I'm thankful for all the 
those folks. And I'm thankful to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Nick's Twitter and, and Nick's fans. Kenny Atkinson. Let's bring him, let's bring him <laughs> to the Big Apple, baby. Bring him to the Big Apple. I'm with you. We will see. We will see. Um, but I know I speak for oh, Chip, Fingers man. crossed, man. Oh, wait. You don't have to bring him to the Big Apple because he's already there. He's already there. It should be easy. It should be easy. Um, listen, man, Joe, I, th- thank you so much for coming on. This was an awesome combo. Um, very excited to get this pod out and to have people listen to it. Um, you know, open invite anytime you want to come back on. Sure. Definitely looking forward. If there's any... Uh, way we can collaborate in the future for sure uh very excited to watch some memphis bat- memphis grizzlies basketball going forward by all means Knicks fans join the memphis grizzlies fan club just come just jump on the bandwagon it's going to be fun we're going to have a good time i'm there all right thank you guys i appreciate y'all be safe absolutely and to all thanks, anyone, joe. anyone thank listening you, out there uh, thanks joe thanks for coming on absolutely thank y'all and we will be back uh, most likely later this week or next week with another episode. Have a good one, everyone.